the last few talks we've had have been about, as I say, the more challenging aspects of uh, this dharma, uh, beginning with uh, we, <coughs> we started looking at the teaching of the Buddha, the first teachings that he gave uh, after his enlightenment. And the very first teaching is the one where he presented uh, what has come to be known as the Four Noble Truths, the first of which is that uh, the nature of life is uh, that it is unsatisfactory. And that's, that's a difficult one to take. That's a challenge. It's a challenge to accept. But it's absolutely essential that we do. Because as long as we're trapped by the illusion that somehow uh, we can make ourselves happy through the things of this world, uh, we're, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment, frustration, suffering, and unhappiness. And uh, the important, one of the important things that uh, that that truth makes us aware of is the distinction between pain and suffering. And if we can, if we can understand that they're not the same, then we can entertain the possibility that it really is true that while pain is inevitable in a human existence, that suffering is not. The suffering is something that we can uh, we can choose not to have. And so, although you may often hear that uh, the, the first of these truths stated as uh, life is suffering, the other part of it is that, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> if we can come to understand, first of all, the nature of suffering, secondly, the cause of suffering, and third, the cessation of suffering. And uh, the cause of suffering is craving that manifests as desire and aversion. And we, uh, and that comes directly out of that belief that we can, I can, I can make myself happy by manipulating this world, and getting some things and having some situations and experiences. And uh, that's, that's one of the things that we, that we have to get over. But we are driven, we are compelled by this uh, innate, instinctive impulse to desire and to aversion. Not because it works in terms of satisfying our individual uh, needs, but rather that as, as far as being uh, organisms that need to survive and reproduce in the world. Uh, it works on average when, when enough of us act out of it. So it's something that we need to overcome. But overcoming it uh, is not as simple as understanding uh, that it is at the root of our problems. Because desire and aversion in turn are rooted in a profound ignorance about the way things really are. Our minds cause us to see and understand things in a way that just really isn't accurate. 
And of that uh, ignorance, the most difficult ignorance to overcome, is the delusion, the illusion involving the self. And we have talked about that quite a bit. And this is not a welcome idea for anyone, that the self is an illusion. And so we talked about, we talked about, uh, and we will talk more about, some of the practices that help us come to penetrate that illusion. And of course the problem is that on the one hand, because our, our human minds, the way they work, creates this sense of self, and we experience everything that we experience from the vantage of, of the self that we believe that we are. Uh, as we become aware of uh, our own perishability, impermanence, and death, then we begin to cling ever more strongly to this idea of the self. And so we tend to go in this direction of wanting to believe that this self somehow is, is exists separate and apart from this body that's going to die. And so that's one one part one result of the illusion of self. The other is that if we decide to be tough realists and, and look at it, and if we start to follow some of these practices, of course it's going to bring us to the same uh, kinds of awareness that indeed there is no soul, no enduring self. No, this, this thing that we wish that we really were, something that is apart from our body and mind, that uh, that doesn't exist. And that, then we start going the other direction and we feel like, oh, this self that I am, because our minds just make us feel like we're a self, and think we're a self. So the interpretation is, oh, this self is not permanent and eternal. Instead, it's going to be annihilated when the body dies. And, uh, and, and that's very unattractive as well. So when we come across this teaching, well, we don't really want to hear that self is an illusion because we've been cherishing this sense of self that we have our entire lives. And uh, more than anything else, we want to find out that it is permanent and eternal and somehow is going to become totally happy, permanently uh, abiding in some kind of bliss. So it's not, it's not something we want to hear, and it's not something that it's easy to understand. But if you do these practices, and if you cultivate the abilities that come through meditation, you can see through the illusion and see what there, what really is. And what really is is neither one of these beliefs, either that that I am the self, but I am the self that's going to be annihilated when I die, nor the illusion that I am this permanent and eternal self, and when this body dies, I'll somehow go on, be reborn, go to heaven, blah, 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 whatever 
myth that we want to associate with it. But we can see beyond that and see what really is. And that's the problem, seeing what really is. And what really is, why can't we see it? It's there all the time. It's because our mind is constantly generating and regenerating the illusion that keeps us from seeing. Uh, William Blake said that uh, if we could, if the doors of perception could be cleansed, then what appears would be what really is, which is infinite. I may not have quoted that quite correctly, but that is. And, and what he says is very true. And what we are after is something that is far superior to any of the delusions that we might cling to and far more satisfying. You see, with the first truth that life is dissatisfactory and is filled with suffering, the subtitle being that it doesn't have to be, what Buddha always replied when somebody asked you know, what, what, he, what he taught, he said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. So the opposite of suffering, that's what we want. Um, and what the Buddha had to say about that, when lust, hate, and delusion are abandoned, a man does not choose for his own affliction or for others' affliction or for the affliction of both. In that way, there comes to be extinction here and now, without delay, inviting inspection, onward leading, and experienceable by the wise. So, we're talking about an extinction of suffering and the causes of suffering. The word nirvana, or nirvana, means the extinction of craving. That's what it refers to. And it is through the extinction of craving that we are able to experience the ultimate truth, which is liberating. Craving perpetuates the illusions that keep us from discovering this ultimate truth. And so, there are a variety of reasons why we need to overcome craving. We need to overcome craving because it is actually the cause of our suffering. And we need to overcome craving because it is the source of those delusions that keep us from uh, understanding this ultimate truth, which will completely liberate us. And the important thing about this is that if none of this although it, it of necessity tends to be described in negative terms, in terms of what is absent and what is not there and what is not real. That uh, it's when we say that uh, we need to discover the truth, that the self we think we are doesn't exist, never has existed, and so therefore cannot be annihilated. That we are in search of something that is positive rather than negative. We're not, we're not 
searching out this uh, a negative in the sense of annihilation. What the Buddha had to say about that is the unaffected is hard to see. It's not easy to see truth. To know is to uncover craving. To see is to have done with owning. There is an unborn as unbrought to being and unmade and unformed. If there were not, there would be no escape. No. Here, for one who is born, brought to being, made, and formed, there would be no escape. But because there is an unborn, an unconditioned, an unformed, there is. But since there is an unborn, an unbrought to being, an unmade, an unformed, an escape is therefore described for one who is born, brought to being, made, formed. And this is this is the understanding of this truth that liberates us from the illusion and frees us from the trap that uh, we find ourselves in because of our biological, evolutionary uh, nature of being beings with a particular kind of mind, a particular kind of inclination, and so that illusion is there. I mean, this desire and aversion is not there by accident, and it's not because we were bad kids in a previous lifetime. It's because, uh, and this illusion of self, likewise, is not there uh, for any of those kinds of reasons. The reason that we have, that we exist as the kind of beings we do is that over time, we evolve, and we evolve. Part of our evolution that made us successful was having a mind that formed this clear, solid idea of self. And along with the idea of self is the sense of the self, this feeling of the self as a reality, and a, a mind that having created that idea of the self and the feeling of the self, then would generate desire and aversion in response to different things. So that we would desire and pursue and accumulate those things that contributed to our survival. And that if somebody else came along and tried to take our mate away from us, we would feel a strong aversion and go tear a strip off of them. They're functional. And they don't exist in order to make us happy. And they definitely stand in the way of our happiness. But the wonderful thing is, is that, number one, they can be overcome. So, just as biological entities that have a mechanism in our brain and mind, that selfs, that creates the idea of a self, and as an entity that has mechanisms in our mind that propel us forward and motivate us through desire and aversion. The fact that that can be overcome, that is, is wonderful news. But as thinking beings, 
and having the kind of intelligence and perception that we do, uh, that would be good. I mean, why can't I just be happy? Why can't everybody just be happy? Well, if we can get over that uh, false belief in, in self and cease to be driven by desire and aversion, be free from suffering and therefore experience contentment and happiness, that's a good thing in itself. That is a reward, absolutely, no question. But there is a part of us that wants to know, that seeks truth, that will say, you know, if if you can have this happiness, there's a part of you that's still going to say, well, uh, all this happiness is really good and... uh, I don't have near as much dissatisfaction as I used to, but there's still a sort of existential uh, lie. And what is truth? And, 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 and you know, we are called Homo sapiens, and the sapiens part of that means that we, uh, we, what is most characteristic of us is this uh, thirst for understanding and knowledge and putting that knowledge to use, so we still have that. And so what is offered in this path goes beyond that. When when the doors of perception are cleansed, we see what really is. And what is is infinite, it is perfect, and it is perfectly satisfying. I'm sure that you are familiar with the idea that we're all one and the appeal of that idea. But that that is an attempt by mystics and saints and enlightened beings over our history to try to explain what this ultimate truth is about. It is about non separateness. The truth of non-self is not the loss of me. It is the loss of the separation. The the separateness is what we lose. And the self that we cling to, it really is an illusion, and you will discover that and experience it yourself. In your meditation, if you look, you will find that self is not what it seems to be. It is a concept. It is a mental construct. It is something created by mind, fabricated by mind, conceptually. And the other aspect of it is that it is a feeling a sense, a sense of separateness, a sense of separateness, and that's what selfhood is all about, is separateness, and everything else, once the separation is there, everything else starts to flow out of that separateness, and that's where our problems are. As long as you are attached to that sense of self, and as long as you believe in it, you are going to be vulnerable to suffering. And you are not going to be able to fully uproot 
this craving. And that craving is going to continue to make you suffer. So your mind is causing you to live in a distorted reality. If you can see the way things really are, you discover, and, and this is what this is what you need to to discover. And right now, if you can discover this, you'll be liberated right away. That, and, and, uh, things, thingness, is a fabrication of our minds. There is only process. And you've heard that the three characteristics are impermanence, uh, selflessness or emptiness, and unsatisfactoriness. Our existence is unsatisfactory, and the more clearly you understand that, then the more you will have achieved renunciation of the false view that your mind imposes on you. That if only you could have this and keep that from happening, everything would be perfect and you'd be happy. And when you can see that's never going to be the case, that all, all actions and all intentions uh, based in that view are doomed to failure and will only bring more suffering. And then you have discovered the truth of suffering and there will be born in you renunciation. You will no longer seek happiness and freedom from suffering through changing this apparent world of things. But there is no such thing as things. There is only process. And that's what emptiness is, is the recognition that our mind creates thingness. It can create the illusion of things and uh, sure, all of our minds work similarly and we communicate. So there's a lot of commonality about what our minds, about this universe of thingness that we've created. So there is a consensual reality. But we also know that the reality that each of us inhabits is totally different than anyone else's. And what's important about that is when you realize that it's created by the and you realize that the truth is, when we say the truth is impermanent, this is not a clear transmission of the, of the insight, of the wisdom. It is not that things are temporary. It's not that there are things, like a self, like me, that exist for a while and they're enduring, but darn it, they all pass away. That's not the insight. The insight is that there are no things. There is only process. And our mind creates the illusion of thingness. The second thing is that there is no separation. The selfness. The selfness that we attribute to the, the appearance of things that our mind creates is an illusion. And the selfness the separateness that we attribute to each of our individually experienced realities is also an illusion. In the absence of that separation, there is oneness, there is unity, there is wholeness, 
there is perfection. And this is what you want to have a direct realization of. This is what you want to discover the truth of for yourself. You see what I mean? And it's not an it's not an idea. If it were, uh, at the level of being an idea, it's just one more idea, and so it just belongs to the whole category of things that uh, is is part of the illusion. It's recognizing it as an ultimate truth, as as the ultimate nature. We've talked about consciousness, our individual consciousness. is it also is an illusion. Our individual consciousness, and the word for that in uh, in, uh, Pali is is, uh, vijnana, and in uh, Sanskrit is vijnana. And the V means that it's dualistic, it's split, it's separate. And as separate, it's an illusion. It's false. Because reality is, is un- unity. It's oneness. When mind creates a duality between the object of consciousness and the consciousness that holds the object, illusion has been entered into. And that consciousness, that dhyana or vijnana, is illusion. When the duality is overcome, when the mind ceases to fabricate this duality, then we have, instead of vijnana, we have jnana. Instead of vijnana, we have jnana. We have, we, have the, we have the direct knowledge of what is, what William Blake was uh, recognizing that would arise if the uh, if the doors of perceptions could be could be cleansed, and that's exactly what we are doing. Is we are working to cleanse the doors of perception. There's a part of your mind that, and I'm sure a part of your brain that corresponds to that, that its whole job is to keep constructing this illusion of self, and uh, another related part of your mind and your brain, that its whole job is to take what arises via your sense organs and make that into a world of things. And so we believe that we are a separate self occupying a universe of independently existent things. And some of those things make us feel good and some of us make us feel bad. And so, uh, if only we can manipulate things well enough, uh, we can have happiness and be free from suffering. And uh, no matter how we came into this world, we'll soon figure out that, well, in order to do that effectively, sometimes we have to make sacrifices uh, in terms of other people. We'll always sacrifice somebody else. (laughs) Somebody else's happiness in order to uh, achieve our own and to escape our own suffering. But the truth is, 
that this is all created in your mind. And even more deeply true is the fact that suffering itself, the suffering that you experience when you uh, don't get what you want or lose what you have or get something that you don't want, that is also created by the mind. It's not like it's real and, you know, 2 plus 2 equals 4. If, if I want this, I don't have that, therefore suffering is an inevitable consequence. No. There's another part of your mind and a part of your brain that says, oh, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Let's we make suffering. You know, it turns on. So let's flood the system with unhappiness, dissatisfaction. And so that's what we experience. Oh, my goodness. I'm unhappy. I really have to change things. But the way, the thing to change is inside. So your mind is no longer, uh, so that part of your mind that's, that, which has the job of creating the mental state of suffering whenever uh, it adds up the prevailing conditions and comes up with a particular answer. You could sort of think of it as a little mini adding machine and it adds it up and if it, uh, if it comes, if it doesn't come to zero, it's got to be plus one or ten or five thousand or minus two or six or, or eighty-three or something like that. And depending on whether it's plus or minus, there's happiness or there's, uh, or there's unhappiness. You know? uh, that's all that's going on. The happiness and unhappiness are being generated to compel you to go out and do, or not do, to their emotions and their purpose is to create motion, movement, so that you go and get things. And you get the things that you are programmed to get pleasure from. You know, the, uh, in a more natural world than the one that we live in in modern society, uh, that would be things that, that taste good. They're good for you, you know. And the more yummy they are for you, the, the, the more they're going to, to, obtaining them is going to assure your survival. And, uh, of course, Mother Nature is not that concerned with you as an individual, but uh, definitely the, the continuation of the species. So you get, uh, you get a lot of happiness and satisfaction out of all of those things, subtle and not so subtle, that have to do with reproduction, right? Yes. So if, if, you, if you would, I, I, I would love to have you uh, put the spotlight, if you would, on, on this word process. Um, it, it seems to be absolutely key and core. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, in one of my meditations very recently, I was outside and um, there were all the morning sounds, the birds, the traffic, a neighbor's door closing, you know, and all the different kind of birds. And as I just listened, just listened, it's like the form, nothing, the form dropped away. And all it was was a movement. And it struck me as, as a, at the time, the word process came because there was this complete movement without form, never ending, eternal. So could you could you 
Yes, Pam. So, you, you just want me to say more about process, right? Yeah. This wasn't a more specific question than that, just No, so. I mean, it's, it's <clears throat> huge and yet it's specific. It seems, yeah. to be, there seems to be a duality there, too. Well, you see, the way our, another thing about the way our minds are is that we, we can't help but perceive things in terms of space and time. And although we can have experiences that liberate us from the, the chopping up of process into discrete things which seem to be self, self-existent, subsistent on their own, the one thing that we don't seem to be able to do, except in very rare moments for very short periods of time, is to transcend uh, the ideas of space and time themselves. And absolutely, we cannot do that conceptually. Conceptually, we can, though, recognize and speak about the experience of uh, non-thingness as truly having the nature of process, but I'm just pointing out that even beneath that, even beneath when we speak of it as process, there is still something that can only rarely and temporarily be touched upon, which takes us beyond the confines of, uh, of our, our mind's need to uh, have the form, the structure provided by space and time. But this we can see, that there is only process. And we can see it on the physical level. You can, especially now with the kind of uh, scientific understanding that we've all been exposed to, is that matter is constantly moving, changing, that what makes up our bodies uh, is, is constantly, you know, we, we take in new matter and matter leaves. We take in energy and energy leaves. So the world, the material world, we can see as indeed uh, having this nature of, of being continuous flux and process. And that can become delightful when we allow ourselves to see it, the sort of thing that you're talking about, the experience that you have, uh, no longer needing to cling to stability of things and being able to just open yourself up to the fact that everything is this dynamic flow. The rate at which the mountains flow is a little bit too slow for us to necessarily catch, but that doesn't mean we can't understand it. We can grasp the reality of it quite But now if you can take that understanding and internalize it to the perception of what you think of as your mind, my mind, which we speak of in the singular, singular, and the self, which likewise we think of as as having this unitary 
property and not only as unitary but as continuity. And our experience of consciousness, which we uh, uh, tend to attach to as a, a, a sort of the last stronghold of this abiding self. And we start to see consciousness itself instead of as a flux, instead of as a flow, instead of something that is is continuously being created in a continuous process of creation. Uh, if you can carry the understanding of process and flow internally and see how it applies to mind itself and, and consciousness, you know, and, and this is all very very doable. You know, when you meditate, uh, a lot of the problems that we talked about uh, before we sat come from thinking of the mind as a single entity. or uh, as, and, and it's not. It's many different entities. And none of those entities is substantial. They're all processes. They're not things. They're processes. They're constantly changing. But in your meditation, if you only open yourself up to it, you start to recognize that. And you can come to that place of seeing that there is only process. In meditation, you have experiences where sensation. Uh, you discover that sensation is something that is more of a quality of a vibration than a thing. And uh, the closer the, the closer you look, the more it dissolves into uh, a, a very fine, effervescent, constantly changing uh, pattern of energy. That's the process that we're talking about. That, in fact, is what our minds make the world out of. Our minds take the particular uh, patterns, the repeating patterns in that flux of sensation, and grasp onto them, and identify them as concepts, and make them into things, and then add all these concepts together to make bigger things, and before we know it, we've got a whole universe created in our mind. Anyway, what we we want to see things the way they really are. That's what this is really going for. To understand things the way they, the, the world experience ourselves as the way it really is. It is appearances that are generated by the mind, and the appearances are illusion. They are not what they think they what we think they are. What's important is what they are hiding from us. And when that is known directly, it has the desired liberating effect. It, uh, it's called by so many different names, but uh, no matter what it's called by, and no matter what uh, conceptual way of thinking 
that somebody or some group of people or some culture has built around it. It is the same ultimate truth. And what's wonderful about it is that it is accessible to us. I mean, it could have been that whatever it was could never be discovered by us. But it's something that can be experienced. And all that is necessary to experience it is for your mind to cease its constant constructing activities. It's but your mind won't do that until uh, until you've created the right conditions. And you have to create the right conditions. Part of that is understanding, you know, in the the, the fourth noble truth, the path to succeed in this is uh, called the Eightfold Path, and it has three divisions. One of those is the, is the division called Wisdom, Understanding. It's developing right view and right understanding. So that has to be accomplished. Another division is uh, uh, the division of Virtue. We have to practice virtue. We have to work on ourselves. We have to, we have to change the way this mind is functioning on its daily basis as an important part of creating conditions to have an awareness of ultimate truth. And the third division is meditation. We have to train the mind so that uh, we can have the experience uh, of the truth that we're talking about. Please, I'm, I'm, I'm begging for questions. There's a bit of a um, glitch in the cord that's coming from oh. here. Oh, the microphone is making annoying noises. It's just kind of going on and off. Uh huh, okay. I'll try to keep that from happening. Is that better now? That's better. Okay, tell me if it happens again. Okay. <clears throat> but do you have a question? Or anything you like? like to discuss? Suffering is as a result of becoming attached to a mental construct. And so we're either craving what we're constructing or we're um, resisting and we have aversion to what the mind has created. That's, uh, uh, yeah, I think you've described it rather well. We're either desiring something that the mind has created or we're experiencing aversion to something that the mind has created. And, uh, uh, and, and so the, uh, what I mean by that, I, I don't mean that, you know, it, uh, uh, it's, it's not that your mind is creating material objects, but the object that you perceive, that's created by you. And if it's an object of desire, then your mind is creating uh, motivations to action and feelings that accompany that. And the inevitable result of that is going to be uh, dissatisfaction, uh, suffering. It may be actions that cause suffering of others, but that mind-created object 
is never going to satisfy you, and it's never going to bring you to any sort of lasting, abiding happiness. You can't. So then you focus on a sense of oneness as opposed to the separateness that maybe brings you back to a clearer sense of seeing? You don't focus, no. I mean, you could do that, and that might produce a beneficial result in the short term. You could spend your time reminding yourself and convincing yourself that there is some sort of oneness in everything. And that may or may not work for a little while. But it's, it's just another, it's another idea, it's another concept. If you put enough energy into it, it might last a little while, but... Uh, uh, and it's also going against everything that your mind is conditioned to do. Your mind is conditioned to say, well, there's me, and I'm hurting, and there's that, and it's causing the pain. So, I mean, it's not going to last. But if you can, if you can understand the truth that the idea you have, the ideas you have of these things are not really the way they are. And if that can become your intuitive way of seeing things, then you have the possibility of passing beyond the illusions that are, that are standing in front of you seeing the way things really are. When you can penetrate that illusion, then you will know that oneness. It won't be an idea that's put back in your mind. Uh, the, uh, it will be a reality which your mind will subsequently try to assimilate and understand. One of the things that's interesting about having that experience is that it permanently changes the way your mind works. You can intellectually understand the emptiness of things. And I don't know whether, I don't know how much time you spent perhaps uh, thinking about this, but we can all, without too much trouble, come to that place of understanding that, well, yes, whatever might be outside of my mind, I can't never really know what it is. All I can know is the perceptions that my mind has, that my mind generates as a result of the sensations that I experience. And if you know a little bit about modern science, you know that those sensations aren't, it's not even that color and, and, and heat and cold and things like that really exist out there. They don't. They are produced, you know, redness and blueness and warmth and cold and things like that. That's all created by your brain or, let's say, your mind. So you can come to realize that, well, whatever there may be outside of my mind, it is essentially unknowable because all I have is the perceptions that are generated by my mind in response to to uh, the sensory experiences that I have. So you can understand that emptiness, right? Uh, and it's important to understand that emptiness. And it's important to carry that beyond just an intellectual understanding to, the, to becoming a, a 
uh, an intuitive way of understanding the way everything is. If when you find yourself very unhappy in a situation, if you can clearly see that, well, you know, somebody else would be having a different experience because they have a different mind and they would have created a different reality. And so I don't have to experience it this way. And if I could get to the root of why my mind is making me experience it in the way it is, then I wouldn't have to experience it this way. That's emptiness. That's the emptiness. The same thing is true. You feel like yourself and you have an idea of who this self is. And that keeps getting reinforced all of the time. But you can also intellectually understand the emptiness of that. And you can, you can uh, cultivate the recognition of that. And you can begin to be somewhat liberated through this conceptual and intellectual understanding of the emptiness of things and the emptiness of self. It makes you much less attached to things in the way that you were before and much less vulnerable to being compulsively driven by desires and aversions. And that's good. As you keep moving in that direction, you develop more and more equanimity. The more equanimity you have, the less attachment you have. The less attachment you have, the more equanimity you have. The more you can understand the ultimate dissatisfactoriness of the pursuit of these illusions that are created by your mind, the more equanimity that you'll have. Well, yes, I can define equanimity. Sir. Can you repeat the question, please? Yeah. Or, yes. What is the role of the repeat the question? What is the role of the mind? <laughs> I have to learn to do this to repeat the questions, especially recording this. So you can all remind me. Mm -hmm. uh, the question, or, or, or what uh, was asked, was what is the role of the mind, and could I define equanimity? First of all, let me define equanimity. Equanimity is the non-reactiveness. The experiences we have will always have some affective quality, some feeling quality. There'll be some element of pleasantness or unpleasantness or perhaps neutrality. But this is, this is inevitable. Normally, we, the mind reacts to that which is, that produces a feeling of pleasantness. We want more of it. We desire it. We are attached to it. And just the opposite, that which is uh, unpleasant, we want less of it. We want to get rid of it. We have an aversion for it. We want to destroy it. We want to make it go away. And equanimity is non-reactivity. It's non-attachment. It's non-desiring. It's non-aversion. So uh, the less strongly your mind reacts to pleasurable experiences, 
that means you have more equanimity. And the less strongly it reacts to unpleasant experiences, the more equanimity you have. It is acceptance. It is acceptance of what is. It doesn't mean that you can't recognize that uh, uh, <clears throat> things can be changed. It doesn't mean that you can't recognize that something that produces either pleasantness or unpleasantness uh, would be better to have more of or have less of. But you are not coming from that place of attachment, desire, aversion. It's not coming from a place of craving. So that's what equanimity means. So as we, as we, you see, as we develop more insight into the, uh, you know, the, the set that there's three characteristics of all the things that we experience, that they are impermanent, they are empty, uh, selfless, and thirdly, that they are unsatisfying. And the more our insight into these three things deepens, the more equanimity we will experience. The role of the mind is uh, the the role of the very same mind that's creating the illusions is that it has the capacity to penetrate those illusions. And the role of the mind is to is to penetrate its own illusions and ultimately, at least for a brief time, to cease creating those illusions so that you have the opportunity to see things as, as they truly are. So we use the mind in this way. We train the mind in meditation and we exercise the mind in the acquisition of, of wisdom, understanding, insight. And we also realize that whatever the mind does in any particular moment is the result of the past conditioning. And this is where the practice of virtue and the practice of of what are called the perfections comes in. Because this is where we learn to condition our minds in a different way. If we recognize that uh, we commit unwholesome actions that cause harm and contribute to the suffering of other beings because of desire and aversion, and we wish to, to overcome desire and aversion in ourselves, then we practice virtue. We practice the non-doing of these harmful sorts of actions. We practice non-harming and non-killing. We practice uh, refraining from false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, and idle speech. We refrain from uh, uh, all the various sorts of of, uh, unwholesome activity, whether it's sexual activity, stealing things, taking things that aren't ours, taking advantage of other people, so on and so forth. As we practice those restraints in our behavior, then they allow us to start modifying the nature 
of the way that our mind functions. And so that we, uh, we have a mind, in, if we exercise this in the present, in the future we have a mind that is not so compulsively controlled by those factors. Yes? I'm just curious how you would um, define rebirth. Define rebirth? <laughs> because we do talk to the soul, we talk of the ongoingness. Um, so I'm just uh, curious how you would find that. That's a very complex subject, but. Did you uh, repeat the question? What's that? <laughs> oh, I said yes. How, did you ask how I would define rebirth? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I would do it the same way the Buddha did, which is to say that the only thing that is reborn is the karmic formations. There is nothing else. There is no, the self that you believe you are is not what's reborn. And as the monk Sati was scolded for and then told, not even the consciousness that you feel you own is what is reborn. The only thing that is reborn are karmic formations, which means, how would I define rebirth? It means that the karmic formations that you generate, and by that we mean all the propensities either for wholesome or unwholesome, wholesome actions that uh, is the conditioning operating in your mind, that those propensities will appear in uh, another being or other beings. So, unless you sever, by, by becoming an awakened being, you sever that process. But if you don't, then you will pass your karmic propensities on to be inherited by some other being. And uh, that's what they'll be stuck with. So you can, at the very least, you can create very positive and wholesome karmic propensities. Would you, would you agree with the um, statement that it's the, the connection of the new body with the continuum of changing moments of consciousness which pre-existed in connection with an old body and then with the connecting to a new body um, then the I arises again. The I is first to arise again. Well, That, uh, okay, that was a long question. Would I, okay. agree, would I agree with, and what I'm being asked if I would agree with, is uh, it's basically an Abhidharma theory. It's post-Buddha theory that says that the way rebirth happens is that there is a continuum of moments of consciousness and that... Uh, the last moment of consciousness that 
you as an individual experience uh, prior to your death. There is a moment of consciousness that links your existence as a mental entity to another being. And that uh, each of these moments of consciousness is the, uh, that make up our life, each moment of consciousness is the cause of the next moment of consciousness. And that what links one life to another is that the last moment of consciousness in one life uh, acts as the trigger for the first moment of consciousness in this other being's next life. Uh, there are, from my point of view, huge philosophical and experiential problems with that Abhidhamma theory. Um, so, I, I would not agree with it as it's stated. On the other hand, there is a much deeper understanding to all of these things. There is a deeper understanding to the doctrine of rebirth. There is a deeper understanding to what we mean by karmic propensities that continue on. Now, if I can describe that very briefly, and it has to be briefly because you know we just have a limited amount of time. But ultimately, I want to, I'd like to have you all have your own experience and realization of this. When we speak of oneness, then it makes no longer any sense to speak of me as an individual and some other individual that's being reborn later on. The separateness of those two is an illusion. That ultimate reality is the total interconnectedness, the emptiness, and that, and the, the emptiness and the unity translates in terms of the kind of conceptual formations that we can use in a talk like this into being total interconnectedness. So, the consciousness that brings anything into being is not the individual consciousness. It is the universal consciousness. It's, it's the consciousness that partakes directly of the quality of oneness that we're talking about. What happens in you as an individual, each of us as an individual, and in future individuals uh, after you have died, after we have died, thinking in terms of, of, of future time, there will be this process of individuation. There will be another person who experiences himself as, a, as an I, and who has, and who comes into this world with karmic propensities. Uh, amongst those karmic propensities are the uh, very fundamental ones of the desire and the aversion and the attachment to the idea of self that we talked about. But then there's all the much more subtle add-ons that we've developed. Those
it, as, in as much as there is a oneness, those don't disappear with the with an artificially isolated part of a totally interconnected process. Um, nothing that constitutes a wave in the ocean ceases to exist with the wave. It merely continues in a different form as a part of the ocean. If in a, a river flowing downhill, it forms a whirlpool and an eddy. That's a process. The only thing that it has is the temporary pattern that makes it appear as, as an object for a period of time. And that's a pattern of energy. And that energy, when the whirlpool dissipates, doesn't cease to exist. It doesn't disappear. It only is transformed. And it may very well show up as another whirlpool a little further down the river. Have you ever watched water flowing? That happens. It's a whirlpool and disappears and then another shows up. And this keeps happening over and over. That would be a closer uh, approximation, you know, intellectually to what rebirth is than this idea that somewhere hidden in this mass of, of body and mind is some something that is going to go on and uh, and something I can cling to because you know there. There are all kinds of things about this body and mind that you are that came from all kinds of beings in the past and will be passed on to all kinds of beings in the future. The important thing is that, that you are them, not that you are you and, and that you were one of them and you will be <laughs> one of them in the future. Yeah. That's not what's important. Yeah. That, that would be a really disappointing outcome. That, as a matter of fact, was the disappointing outcome that the Brahmanic philosophers had come to at the time of the Buddha. You know, they had this view of reincarnation. And here we are, you're born over and over and over again. You know, and uh, at first that sounds good. Oh, well, death's not the end of it. I get to have another shot at it. But then every, board, every birth means a death. And so there was this idea of, well, that the realization that rebirth means re-death. And the, realize, the realization that although at first glance the idea of this self that I really am being reborn again and again, that's not such a good idea after all. And the Buddha said, hey, no problem. This exist anyway. You don't have to worry about it anymore. But there, and there is a deeper truth that if you can come to that truth, that will liberate you. That will set you free. Well, it seems an intellectual conundrum to even be able to articulate the process of rebirth because, um, you know, you're basically, we're talking about the emptiness of the I, you deconstructing that, sure. and then to try and say that even in the sense of a mental construct of a consciousness or a continuum that goes on, then we're applying the same kind of self-existent nature to that concept, exactly. which right. doesn't exist. So, you know, and the you in the past, and the you now, and the you in the future are also a lot. 
because they don't exist either. That's exactly say, right. To you, say you, that you the know. karmic imprints that you, that you have made in this life are going to carry on to another being in a new body, that's, you know, that doesn't, uh, doesn't even make sense to a degree. So it's, um, it, it's almost, you know, inarticulable, inarticulable. It's hard to describe with, with our, the language that we have, what happens. I have no hope of repeating that. <laughs> <laughs> I just hope that I spoke loud enough. But, but uh, it might have been loud enough to come across. That was very good, Susie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And, and that is true. But, you know, we have this tendency, we want to keep exerting self-nature to things. You know, uh, that's the way our minds work. And, and as a matter of fact, we can't talk without that happening. And uh, that's why you have in in all of the uh, in all of the wisdom traditions of the world, not just Buddhism, but all of the wisdom traditions of the world, you have different levels at which things are taught and, and understood. And so until somebody can recognize that because of the universality of emptiness, this uh, or, or the or, or the ultimate truth of anatta of, of not self, that uh, that these notions of reincarnation that we want to point to have to be false. Until you get to the point of realizing that, you may need that. You may need that way. You may need to think in those terms to help you along. But uh, we're trying to get all all the way beyond that. We're trying to let go of these of these intellectual crutches and attachments that are no longer holding us back more than they're holding us up. I thought I'd read one more little thing from the sutras here. Before we finish for the evening, there was once a bhikkhu in this community of bhikkhus who had this thought. Where do these four great entities cease without remainder? That is, the earth element, water element, fire element, and air element. Then he entered upon concentration such that when his mind was concentrated, the path to the gods was manifest. And we'll skip a big part of this. He goes to all these different realms of the gods. And he asks them all this question, where do the four elements uh, cease? All the way up to the great Brahma. And uh, he, he asks the great Brahma, and the great Brahma evades the question. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'll read to you the great Brahma's answer. He says, Bhikkhu, I am Brahma, the great Brahma, the transcendent being, untranscended, sure-sighted, wielder of mastery, Lord Maker and Creator, Most High, Providence, Master of those that are and ever can be. Bhikkhu asked this, uh, asked Elder he says, Friend, I did not ask that. What I asked was, where do the four great entities cease without remainder? So finally, the great Brahma pulls him aside and says, listen, I couldn't tell you in front of all the other gods because they think I know everything. 
but I don't know the answer to this. So. The Bhikkhu then vanished from that world. He came and asked the Buddha the same question. Actually, it says they came and asked me the same question, because this is the Buddha speaking in the first person. I told him, Bhikkhu, it happens that seafaring traders set sail with a shore-finding bird, and when the ship is out of sight of land, they release the bird. It goes to the east, south, west, and north, and up and down, and in between. If it sees land to one side, it goes towards it. But if it sees none, it comes back to the ship. So too, Bhikkhu, wherever you sought, even in the Brahma world, you found no answer to your question, and so you came back to me. But the question should not be put like that. It should be put like this. Tell them, where do water, earth, fire, and air no footing find? Where likewise the long and short, big and small and big, fair and foul, where is it that name and form do without remainder cease? And the answer thereto is this. The consciousness that makes no showing, nor has to do with finiteness, claiming no being apart from all, there it is that water, earth, fire, and air no footing find. And likewise, the long and short, small and big, fair and foul, there it is that name and form do without remainder cease. So the problem with the question is that it was couched in the sense that materiality in terms of the four elements actually existed. And so the question was, where where did these cease? Where is the end of what is? And the correct way of stating it was, where do water, earth, fire, and air no footing find? And what this means is that this material reality is mind-created, the four elements. So it's not where do, where they, where do they cease to exist because they don't exist? It's rather, where does the appearance of these no longer find any footing? And so on with the other things that he added to it, the long and short and so forth. And the answer to this is the consciousness that makes no showing nor has to do with finiteness, claiming no being apart from all. And this, the ultimate truth that we are after is that all of those things that we wrestle with as to, in terms of existence and non-existence are projections of the mind solely and exist only in the mind. In the course of our understanding the nature of reality more and more deeply, we come to realize that this idea of reality, of existence, has no meaning except in terms of consciousness. Do you see that? It's a little bit, it's not that hard to grasp, but maybe just a little bit. You know, this idea that when I'm not conscious of something, that something still exists, if we are really honest, if we are really strict 
in our, if we are really scientific in our investigation, we realize that the mind infers existence outside of consciousness. But the only thing that you can really speak of in terms of reality is something real or not, is that that of which there is consciousness. And now the individual consciousness we have, the separate consciousness that we have, that arises in the six senses and dualistically takes an object, this is not the real consciousness. The real consciousness is that consciousness which is the same in all of these senses, that consciousness which is the same in all sentient beings, that consciousness which is only one, and that <coughs> has no separate being, but is the foundation for anything that our individual consciousness or our mind might identify as existing or as reality. So the ultimate reality is the purely undifferentiated consciousness that is universal and that is the source of everything that underlies it all. And as a matter of fact, this was discovered by physicists back in the 20s and 30s, that nothing exists until the probability wave is collapsed by conscious observation. But it's not the conscious observation of an individual, separate, self-identifying conscious mind. It is the universal consciousness that collapses the quantum probability wave. And essentially, physics is converging with Buddhism and, and everything else. All of our different sources of knowledge. Philosophers have discovered the same thing that, that uh, we're talking about as emptiness. Uh, the phenomenal, uh, ph the uh, phenomenologists, uh, Immanuel Kant, and, uh, Husserl and uh, Merleau-Ponty and uh, all of these phenomenologists discovered the same thing, that the only reality we know is the reality in our mind. The existentialists, and then you go to sciences and the physicists, all sources of human knowledge and understanding are converging on the same ultimate truth. The neuroscientists now are, are finding that well, yeah, there's a place in the brain that creates the sense of self, and things can happen to make it stop creating the sense of self. Well, that's the same thing that people have been doing through spiritual practice and meditation for a long, long time, is getting that part of the brain to just shut up for a little while, <laughs> get out of the way, so that we can discover what's really going on. Anyway, that is, that is the reward that we're after. That's what makes learning 
learning the truth of non-self worth doing and to overcome all our fear that we're going to lose something so precious when we discover that there really is no self. And discovering the truth of emptiness, that we're going to lose this precious world of sports cars and sex partners and everything else that we're so attached to. Money in the bank or whatever it is. You know, it's really worth it. If you get beyond that, you come to the place of not just the end of suffering, but of the wisdom that transcends all of the possible causes of suffering.